Hello, and welcome to the Scene to Song Season 4 finale. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and this week I brought back eight of our Season 4 guests to talk about some of the topics we discussed this year and answer some questions from our listeners. The discussion was held live on Sunday, December 19th on Scene to Song's Facebook page and was recorded for this podcast almost in its entirety. I hope you've enjoyed the season, and if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, as well as give us a rating and a review, which will help this podcast find even more listeners who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musical theater as a literary art form. And a special announcement for 2022. When Scene to Song returns for Season 5, it will have an accompanying monthly e-newsletter. You'll get more info about the episodes and guests, a This Month in Musical Theater History, shoutouts to upcoming musicals in development, and more. Sign up now at scenetosong.substack.com to make sure it's in your inbox when we launch in February 2022. And now, let's listen to the Season 4 Finale episode. I want to welcome all our guests from season four that could be here today. Um, We'll go around, um, say our names, which episode we did, where we're zooming in from, um, and uh, we'll go in, uh, I'm going to put the order in our chat (laughs) so we can look at it. Um, But yeah, um, let's go in this order. Well, then, so hello, uh, I'm Janine McGuire. I was on episode 55, The Musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I am Zooming you from New York City. Hi, everyone. I'm Deborah Blumenthal. I did episode 57, which was about company, and I am Zooming from Chicago. Hi, uh, I'm Rob Hartman. I was on episode 59, Merrily We Roll Along, and I am Zooming in from Denmark. Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I did episode 60 about the musical Parade, and I'm zooming in from New York City. Hello, I'm Amber Sava. I was on episode 64 about rock musicals, and I'm here in London. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Robert Lee. Uh, I was on episode 65, uh, which started off as a conversation about artist characters in musical theater, but um, but then ultimately became a conversation about uh, how we create and what of ourselves do we bring to it and how do we try to connect those dots with other people. Oh, I'm in New York City. Hi, I'm Beth Ann. I'm, I was on episode 66, talking about Into the Woods. And uh, I'm zooming in from the Bronx. Hi, I'm Victoria. I was on episode 67 about Verna Peters and I am in New York City. Great. Um, And I am your host, uh, Shoshana Greenberg. I am also, I was on all the episodes and I am also in New York City uh in Harlem so uh welcome everyone um thank you all for being here and uh so yeah we will I wanted to start the episode uh with a kind of a Sondheim tribute um because you know Sondheim passed away pretty recently it's kind of colored I think uh the episodes and I think 
almost everyone this season in one way or another has talked about Sondheim in some way, um, some mo more overtly um, than others, but, um, uh, you know, either either having the topic of the episode be about Sondheim or their why is this so good selection or whatever it is. So I wanted to just kind of go around and, you know, have everyone talk about uh, what, um, you know, our, our first Sondheim show, a favorite Sondheim song or a favorite memory of seeing something Sondheim, um, you know, whatever Sondheim uh, item you want to talk about and, and what his work has meant to you uh, or not, um, you know, uh, as the uh, guest Daniel Mate said, you know, he's grappled with some of his work, Sondheim's work. So there's always that um, aspect. And uh, yeah, and we'll, we'll go um, in uh, reverse order from how we just introduced ourselves. So I'm first? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so when Shoshana told us this was gonna be the first question, I was thinking about it, trying to remember the first Sondheim musical that I actually ever saw live, which I'm pretty sure was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum when Nathan Lane did it. And then I know sometime a few years after that, I saw that production of Follies that the Roundabout did, um, but I don't remember what year that was. Um, but then my sort of funny Sondheim story that I tell is that when I was little, I would watch a lot of um, Nick at Night in TV Land, back when TV Land was still a station. And they used to play the Sonny and Cher show. And um, I talk about this in the Burn Up Peters piece, that the first time I saw Brenda Peters was when she was on the Sunny and Cher show as a guest star and as one of her, and it was their Christmas show too. Um, and it was the iteration of the Sunny and Cher show because there were two, one pre-divorce and one post-divorce. And this was the post-divorce, which makes this whole story even stranger to me. Um, and she sang Send in the Clowns in one of the sketches on there. And for years, I thought Send in the Clown was written for the Sunny and Cher show, which actually, I think, if you take everything into account, the fact that they were, like, doing the show after they had gotten divorced, like, it sort of makes total sense that they would have composed that number. Um, and later, I found out that they didn't. And it was, in fact, uh, Stephen Sondheim from A Little Night Music, which is actually one of my favorite Sondheim shows. Um, but so that's my little Sondheim anecdote from my childhood. Nice. I, I really do love that story. <laughs> um, so I've already told my um, first encounter Sondheim story, I think more than once on this show, uh, that my first Broadway show that I saw was um, Into the Woods for my sixth birthday and my grandmother took me into the city to do that. But um, I think I'm going to steal Shoshana's for this one, which is we spent a summer or was it a year or however long it was at the Museum of Television and Radio going to this um, exhibit that they did of Sondheim. And it was like you go once a week and you sit in this theater and watch interviews and televised concerts and just anything that they had recorded. And so by the time Sondheim and Sondheim came out, um, I was like, all the recorded bits, I was like, oh, I've seen this already. <laughs> and it really made me feel uh, 
I mean, I know some people here actually uh, did know him and interact with him a bit, but it it made me feel like I I got to know a public face of him. I don't know. Yeah, that was um, that was for his seventy fifth birthday um, in two thousand five. Uh, that now the the museum television radio now the Paley Center did, and it was it was really great. Um, exhibit uh each week they had a different um a different program that you could go watch um yeah it was really nice cool um yeah i guess um i guess the sondheim story that i'll tell um i think um by now everybody um everybody who didn't realize this everybody who's who was not a musical theater writer who didn't realize this realizes this now the the, the number of letters that he sent out um uh, of encouragement to um, uh, to young writers, um, and it, I was one of them. I, it, like I, he sent me some letters even before I knew that I wanted to be a writer, um, and it was very, very important. You know, at that point, I was in college. Um, my parents wanted me to be a doctor. They were completely against the idea of my uh, going into the arts, um, and so it was it was really important um, to just get these these. Uh, these periodic notes in the mail. So, um, but the one thing that um, that uh, that I am remembering right now that um, was really astounding was that when I was a senior in college, um, I was getting my chance to direct my first production for the theater group that I was a part of, and um, and they asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to do Into the Woods. Um, now I went to school in New Jersey, and Into the Woods had recently closed the original production, and for people who know about um, a musical theater licensing, what happens usually when a show closes is that, or when a show is open, um, and then when it uh, just closes, or when the tour is about, they restrict the property. And so they basically say that, that within a certain radius of New York City, usually oftentimes other major cities, that you're not allowed to do a production of it at all. And so um, I'd said, I wanna do Into the Woods, and um, the organization went to MTI, which licenses Into the Woods, and, um, and applied for a license. And MTI said, no, sorry, that show is restricted. Um, and so we were like, oh, that's too bad. Um, and at some point I decided to write Sondheim and I said, you know, I'm really bummed out. I was gonna get a chance to direct into the woods, but oh, well, I guess it's not gonna happen. And, and that was it. And then like probably a month later, I got a call from the people who ran the um, theater organization and they were like, oh, well, magically they're saying that you're allowed to do the show now. So gonna do the show. <laughs> and I, you know, I never, I, I never asked Sondheim about this. I never like got confirmation, but I'm like 99% sure that he probably just called MTI and said, what are you doing? Let them do the show. <laughs> and I thought for somebody to go to those lengths when I was an absolute nobody uh, was extraordinary. So anyway, so I've always remembered that. And uh, to me, that speaks volumes about who he was. Nice, I love that story. Hello again. Um, so I think I first became aware of Sondheim, honestly, when the Sweeney Todd film came out because everyone went and saw it and I was about 14 or 15 at the time. So um, everyone in my school was a little bit, well, not everyone, but some of us were quite obsessed with it, uh, which was great because years later, a good 10 years later, I think I um, performed in Sweeney Todd in Edinburgh. So that was nice. Uh, Getting aware of Sondheim as a performer happened in one of my first acting jobs after 
I graduated from university and it was a panto, but it had a music from lots of different places, but it was Little Red Riding Hood. So I needed to learn a section of Into the Woods. And it was a real wake up call in the way that his music is written. A, to be very natural and conversational and to flow, but B, there's very little space to breathe. <laughs> so that was something I had to kind of navigate and work on. And I think a fun sometimes story I like telling is, because that was before the Into the Woods movie came out. And then when the movie did come out, um, a friend of mine who is a director said, hey, let's go see it together. I said, absolutely. So we went and we went to the cinema and he said, why are there so many kids here? And I said, well, because it is a combination of lots of different grim tales and fairy tales. You and I are the only people here as Sondheim fans. And I had to remind him of that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, I, I love your perspective on uh, on Sondheim as a performer. Um, I Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have performed a little bit just, you know, as a someone who sings, but... Um, it's really great to have that perspective too. Um, Danielle. Yeah, I think my first experience with Sondheim was really with um, him as a lyricist because I grew up with West Side Story as I'm sure most of us did. Um, and I also just remembered right now that in high school, one of my classes, it was a theater class, showed us um, the Bette Midler Gypsy movie. <laughs> um, and that was, I think, my first exposure to Gypsy, which is crazy. Um, but I also, I, I like, I can't really remember a first encounter, partly because, you know, I went to a performing arts camp. So like it was, I was see inundated with like obscure and mainstream musicals from the time I was 12 and I started going. Um, I would say probably the first Sondheim show that I saw was either Sweeney Todd or Company because my camp did them a lot, which is hilarious to think about teenagers doing those shows now. Um, but yeah, I I like can't remember a time that his work wasn't a huge influence on my taste and my, I don't know, everything. Yeah. Yeah, I said that it's in the, the Sondheim episode we did recently, but Gypsy I, had to have been my first exposure to Sondheim as well. It's, it's a, that and Into the Woods are good shows for kids. So <laughs> it, 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 they're good first exposures. Um, Rob. Yes, um, well, like everybody, I think I have so many, but um... Uh, around this time of year, I always think about Into the Woods because that was the first, um, it was actually the first Broadway show that I'd seen. And uh, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. My dad was an airline pilot, so we had the ability, like if you flew at times when nobody else was flying, you could fly for free. And so on Christmas Day, when it had just opened, I went to New York City for a day to see it. Uh, 
just to see this live. And, you know, in those days um, before the internet, you know, it's like how to figure out how to buy a ticket. I had to like get a New York Times and call some number. And, you know, it was a month after it opened. I was like, oh, I hope the original people will still be in it. That month seems like a really long, you know, run. Like when you're in high school and your play runs for two weekends. So I went and saw that and it was, you know, I had no idea that Broadway theaters were as intimate as they are, because where I grew up, like tours uh, would come through in like this giant barn, and you assume that everything's going to be enormous. But like seeing them, and never having heard the music before, it was you know. And there's Bernadette Peters, like right, you know, right there. So it was like a magical day. Came, saw it, stayed the night in New York City, and flew home. And then a couple of years later, they were doing it in London, and had the opportunity to go to go there. And what was mind-blowing about that first production, and you can see little, I don't think that the whole thing was filmed, but you can see little clips of it online. And Imelda Staunton was in it, and, and it was designed completely differently. I'm uh, forgetting the name of the, I think it was the, uh, Robert probably knows this, like, uh, you know, this, the director maybe also designed it, but it was completely different. It was like set in like a you know, a nightmare nursery. There was a giant black forest cuckoo clock going around and everyone running around and a bit of a panto thing. And what that opened my mind to, and I, I'm surprised I had never really thought about this, but that, you know, I thought, well, a show is a show and this is the way you do it. And that's the way you always do it. You know, like doing musicals in high school, you think, well, that's how they did it originally. And that's how people will always do it. And to see that this completely different design transformed the feel of it, um, completely so that was uh that, you know it was really mind expanding but yeah i'd say that was the most powerful introduction great and i have we have a comment on the facebook page that um a lot of uh americans don't know what a panto is and i think that's been mentioned so rob if you want to since you were just or amber since you were talking about it um just say what a panto is because it's it's come up <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I forget that's a really, really British thing, isn't it? <laughs> oh, how do you explain panto? It's it's in some ways actually got a really beautiful history and in other ways it's it's really silly and not serious. So essentially it's usually across Christmas and it's a type of theatre. It can be huge, it can be local um, and it's usually very fun and very silly and child friendly with kind of hidden adult humor. And a really big staple of Panto is music. Um, there's always music um, and also uh, gender swapping. So it was kind of a really big part of playing with gender in, in theater, a big part of that history. So the dame of Panto is basically a drag queen. So you'll have like Cinderella's ugly stepsisters um, as drag uh, or, and a lot of the time, male heroes like Dick Whittington or Aladdin or a Prince Charming are usually played by women. So um, it's basically very silly, very playful, very colourful and kind of in your face and big costumes, fun musical Christmas shows. And and they're usually, if if I'm if I if I remember correctly, Amber, they're usually fairy tales, folk tales, they're usually adaptations of traditional tales right story tales absolutely yeah but you know it's become so big that some are some are specific to the panto version so um i'm i'm forgetting names now but there are characters that exist in the panto adaptation of a story and things like that as well 
Like in Cinderella, it's um, she's got a friend usually buttons, isn't it? Uh, or yeah, yeah. Um, I I was living in London for a couple of years and had a friend who's like, I'm taking you to a panto and teaching you everything. So you know, I was yes, but it's it's amazing. I'm I love it. Julia is. I'm trying to remember the name of this of a famous panto character, um, but because they're called Dame something, my brain is going Judy Dench, and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> but um, it's it's usually big, um, feminine, over the top characters as well. It's very fun. It's very child friendly. It's great for school holidays and Christmas season, and it's it's very often, yeah, um, some kind of folk tale or fairy tale. Great. Well, thanks for thanks for explaining. Uh, we can. Uh, continue with uh, Deborah. Okay, um, so I'm pretty sure that the first live Sondheim musical that I saw for which he had written the music and the lyrics was Pacific Overtures in 2004, um, dove right into the deep end. I had seen The Gypsy, that was a few years before that, but I, I feel differently about the ones for which he wrote just the lyrics and the ones for which he wrote the entire score. Um, so that was a lot, um, but I think that was a season where I just saw everything. So I was like, you know, why not? Um, I was a student at the time and rush tickets were cheap. And I thought, well, why, you know, why don't I check this out? Um, my favorite memory of seeing one of his shows also happens to be, I think my favorite memory of anything that's ever happened to me in a theater um, was the performance after the 2007 Tonys. So the company revival had one best revival. Yes, I'm going to talk about company. Um, they had one best revival. Raul Esparza had not won the Tony, which is still not okay. Um, and they had announced that they were closing right after that. And I think it's it's unusual that a show wins a huge award and then also announces that it's closing. So there were a lot of just big feelings, I think, for everybody that night. And um, after being alive, there was a standing ovation that was two minutes, which is a tremendously long time for a standing ovation to last. Um, and I had never seen like a mid-show standing ovation before. I, like I was still in college and I just remember sort of watching this wave like right through the audience. And so often people, I think, stand at the end of a show. It's like standing ovations often feel like so rote. Like I'm here, I have to do this because everybody around me is doing it. And I remember that night feeling like it, it meant something more. I think it seemed to me people were like, you know, people were sad and they were happy to be there. And it was just sort of, you know, we're supporting you anyway um and that show had had a really long winter of like very small audiences and it was nice to see people like show up and really really love it at the end um so that's I guess more of an audience thing than a Sondheim thing but I think so kind of in keeping with a lot of the things people have been saying in the last few weeks since he died um and it's something that I'll remember forever great um and uh and I believe yeah, I believe I'm the last to speak. Again, this is Janine McGuire, if I uh, can't remember my voice from the beginning. But, um, oh, I so enjoyed listening to everybody's um, memories so far. Um, I, 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 Shoshana, I think it's really interesting too that you said that each of us mentioned Sondheim on our podcast as we spoke about all different topics. I, I remember definitely that I did on the Andrew Lloyd Webber show um, in talking about how um, the musicals that inspired me growing up were not necessarily in any one category. But then again, I sort of don't like the categories at all. I don't think like even, you know, a Lloyd Webber or Sondheim should be a dichotomy or a binary or any of that, um, that, that one can grow up just experiencing and loving um, so much of it. But um, I'm trying to think specifically, I mean, um, I have all these memories of all different shows. 
And um, I would say though, just one personal one that just comes up for me as a musical theater writer was actually just seeing a production of Merrily We Roll Along. Um, I checked my spreadsheet in 2015 um, at uh, the Astoria Performing Arts Center oh, in Astoria. I saw um, that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was a wonderful production. And I saw it with my um, writing partner, um, Ari Lawton Simon. Uh, we had just been working together for, for a few years at that time, but just the joy of seeing it with him, seeing something that felt like it um, just, it encapsulated feelings and moments and the um, the experience of being a writer uh, so clearly. Um, and, you know, and I had seen the show before. I'd even seen the, um, the City Center production. So it wasn't as if I was not familiar with the material, but I think um, one of the amazing things about Sondheim's work and, and about theater in general is that every time you see it, um, to recreate it on stage, there are new things to take from it uh, emotionally, to learn from it. So that was one um, really special experience in the theater. And um, additionally, I wanted to add that I just, I feel like I've just been so privileged to um, get, to have gotten the chance to be um, in the room with him several times. Uh, and every, as you know, as a feedback giver, not on my work, but on um, other other work that uh, you know, I was um, involved in a workshop for or things like that. I'm the first time was uh, I in my late teens. I was part of this New York Youth Symphony program that I'm not sure if it's around anymore, but it was called Making Score, and it was for young composers. And he came in and talked so beautifully about his career to a wide range of of student composers, and you know everything that everyone is saying about him right now about uh, just was so true. Just the the complete class, the attention, the um, candor that he uh, that he um, invited in for, for, from everybody. Um, in a room full of like, you know, 20 or so, um, you know, composers was, was beautiful. And he also brought, I think, an incredibly um, uh, just brilliant level of, of critique and encouragement to the BMI workshop. Um, and so I, I, when I also look back, I think of his work and I also think of the person and, and what he was able to share of himself during his time here. Great. Um, yeah, and I, I, I feel like I've talked a lot about over responding to you all and and also on the episodes about my my uh first experiences with Sondheim's work as I said Gypsy and Into the Woods uh were mine funny thing happened on the way to the forum which for some reason I always forget is is a Sondheim show um but uh yeah I just it's been really great this you know past month or so you know since his passing to really reflect on these things um you know, and how much his work has meant to us over the years. Um, so thank you everyone for, for sharing that. And, and thank you, we have some uh, comments on uh, the Facebook post of the live stream um, from Gela talking about uh, their experience with uh, Sondheim. So please, please feel free uh, if you're listening to comment on the, on the you know, Facebook posts. Um, it seems uh, they saw a straight play by Sondheim on Broadway that was terrible called Getting Away with Murder. I've never heard of that, but- um, but Yeah, he wrote it, I think with George Firth. Uh, okay, so- Very strange, yeah. Yeah, so uh, they saw that and it was a good experience seeing a terrible play by a playwright whom I greatly admired. Like even the people who are like gods to me can do something that sucks and that's okay. It really humanized him for me and just made me love him more. Um, so thank you, Gallo, for, for commenting, um, and please continue to comment, uh, and uh, everybody please comment on the Facebook post as well. 
Um, great. So uh, again, and as well as comment, please, you know, if you uh, want to call in, we will definitely take your call. Um, the I will put the uh, call in information in a comment again on the Facebook post in case it's uh, buried in there now, but we'd love to uh, hear from you if you want to call. Um, just put that there. Uh, 929-436-2866. Um, and yeah, so now we'll go on to uh, our episodes. And I, I always just like to ask at the, at the season finale, you know, which is where we talk about just like, you know, feedback from listeners. And I'm, I want to ask all of you, um, have you, uh, did you receive any feedback on your episodes? Um, and also if you've listened to other episodes this season, uh, which ones you found interesting, um, you know, uh, to discuss as well. Um, and at this point, anybody can jump in. <laughs> well, I may jump in. This is Janine yeah. speaking. Um, I loved Amber's episode on rock musicals. Um, it probably doesn't come as a surprise that I also love rock musicals, um, but I was very excited by the, um, you know, the diversity of shows that you talked about within that. And um, I mean, specifically, I was thrilled to hear discussion about Bad Out of Hell, the musical, one of my favorites, because I'm a ride or die Jim Steinman fan. Um, and we also unfortunately lost him um, this year in 2021, um, also back in April. And, um, but I think Bad Out of Hell is this amazing um, living legacy of his. Um, it was sort of his dream to put on stage, um, a, a dream 50 years in the making from the, the original creation of some of those songs. And so anytime people talk about it, um, I'm super thrilled. And also because it's had this life where it um, had a lot of, uh, it, it really premiered um, in Europe and in, in the UK um, and, uh, and made, did make it over here for a, um, a short, uh, stint over the summer in 2019 at city center. Um, and I saw it then it was absolutely wonderful. I went many times, but I was also just curious. I wanted to thank you, Amber, for talking about it and also just hear it. I, I'd, lo I'd love to know more about you, you seeing it, um, seeing it, if you saw it in London or if you saw it in Manchester or wherever that was. So funny you should say Manchester. I just did an acting job in Manchester like a month ago. That was weird. Um, but no, I saw it in London. I'll be really honest. Um, it was it was a spur of the moment thing. I was with um, a friend who's an actor and director and she was just on her phone and she said, do you want to go? I can get tickets for ridiculously cheap. So we just went, well, yeah, why not? I had no, I, I know the album back to front. It was an album that my mum gave me as a child and I would play on a little CD player while I was getting ready to go out. Um, I absolutely love the music um, and I had no idea what I was in for. And it even as such a fan of the album, it was a very surreal experience. Like, I I feel like um, I consider a slight rule that you should never have to explain too much to your audience. I feel like you need to make that clarity in all the jobs that everyone does, the direction, the writing, the acting, and so on. But it was it's such a crazy story that there are handouts on your seats saying, this is the world you're in. Uh, and it, they do it like it like a newspaper article, but it was basically okay. Before we start, <laughs> let me explain a few things. 
and okay go curtain up and it was actually so necessary because it's such an out there story but I have no problems with something being a bit out there I fully believe in just embracing whatever something is I think we talked about this Shoshana if it's a crowd pleaser if it's a jukebox musical if it's basically a gig but not or if it's some weird psychedelic story just go with what you're enjoying and run with it and Bat Out of Hell is a really good example of that Awesome. Yeah. Anybody else? Um, yeah, Beth Ann. So I'm, you know, my entire reason for being here is that I'm a super fan, but, uh, (laughs) so I, I've been listening to everyone's episodes and I want to thank you all for so many insights. Um, but, uh, in terms of turning me on to a new thing, uh, Victoria, I, I, you already know this, but, um, well, I was already a huge um, uh, Bernadette Peters fan. So your discussion of Bernadette Peters, while wonderful, was not um, wasn't necessarily new to me. But at the end of your episode, you talked about Bette Midler and you got to have friends. And like I listened to that episode, and then I like I was driving, so I like told my phone to play me that song. And it played me that song. And then I was just like, play it again, play it again. (laughs) Um, Somebody mentioned the Bette Midler um, uh, gypsy. And she's like my gyp, she's my mama Rose. Like, I don't know. And I think maybe she's a non-traditional person for the role, or maybe she's the most traditional person for the role. But to me, she's, she is that person. And uh, that song you were right. It's, it's weird. It's wonderful. And it's, uh, and it's, and it's a little crazy. Uh, and I, and I, uh, so I've started to listen to her more and some of her stand up, which is hilarious. And yeah. You actually mentioned, um, Amelda Staunton earlier, right? Was that you, Bethann? Um, uh, no, it oh, it was Rob, but I actually saw, Imelda Staunton in Play Mama Rose on the West End. And I saw her do um, Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney before it was on the West End. I was studying abroad in London and Sweeney Todd was happening at Chichester. And I went down to see her in that. And like, she's that, unbelievable. That was now, the one like, that I'm like, I don't know who my Mama Rose is. Like for a minute it was Bet, then it was Patty. <laughs> now it's sorry I didn't see the Bernadette production Victoria unfortunately I don't it's think okay. any I of us you. saw uh, <laughs> Ethel Bourbon so you know <laughs> I saw the Bette Midler movie too as a kid I'd actually forgotten that I'd seen it but then when Danielle brought it up and I saw it I was eight and I was on an airplane um going to Nairobi and it was back when they would have like these little like individual movie players on the back of the seats and they would hand out, they were like these little weird cassettes that you could put in. And they had a very limited selection of things that were appropriate for an eight year old. So they were like, here, musical. And I remember halfway through looking over to seeing what my mother was watching and she was watching the piano. (laughs) And I was like, why is there a woman wandering around naked on this beach? Um, So forever in my mind, Gypsy and the piano are sort of like fused together, which is really weird. Um, But for Bed Midler, yeah, I would just, 
if anyone is not familiar with her early work and you're looking for something to do, especially now as we're going back and maybe being a little more isolated, um, I would definitely like recommend checking it out. There's a lot you can find on YouTube and also uh, her concert special Divine Madness is on Apple, I believe. Um, and I think if you're only familiar with her work sort of post when she got her deal with Disney, which is in Gypsy Happened and then the First Wives Club and all that, her early work is pretty different um, and really kind of out there and crazy and wonderful. Um, and you sort of see why she became such an icon. Um, and her song interpretations are also just like really great. And sort of like I was saying on the episode, something like um, you've got to have friends, which we think of as being this like really sort of like trite song. Like it's actually so weird and kind of disturbing and fantastic. Great. Oh, oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I have one more and I think, I hope it's somebody who is on the screen. Somebody talked about the Rainbow Connection as their favorite song. Who, who was Oh it? yeah, that was me. <laughs> Not my favorite, but one of my favorites. <laughs> I mean, it, who can pick a favorite song? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was actually really interesting because um and i can i i have evidence that this is from long before you but um i consider myself a religious person and uh i i whatever <laughs> and I, I have always loved that song i mean it's it's a beautiful song and in your description of it i realized you're pretty much exactly explaining my theology <laughs> Which is, you know, um, that, you know, the world exists because of physics and evolution and all this stuff, and it's just there. There's nothing supernatural about that. But our ability to feel wonder about it is the thing that's wonderful. And uh, it's amazing that, did who, who wrote the song? um it was paul williams and um oh why am i blanking on uh and kenny asher paul williams okay. and kenny asher. it's it's amazing that they isolated that in the song and to hear you break it down and 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 all of a sudden this like just uh revelation like oh i'm not the only one who thinks that <laughs> and in <laughs> fact it's into this very popular song that you know millions of children grow up with and uh Anyway, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah, it's very deep, but it's almost like a stealth deep, right? <laughs> yes, stealth, yes stealth. that's exactly what it is. <laughs> you know, it's it might be a conversation for another day, but there are there are quite a few really beautiful examples of musical theatre addressing aspects of being religious, and I think that they can have some really beautiful moments in them regard like things that you don't you don't have to be practicing a religion to appreciate the two that stick with me a lot are um heaven's eyes from prince of egypt it's a really beautiful song and you don't have to even believe in a god to to get the point it's making which is how can you say what you're worth you have value 
in whatever you are and whoever you are and I just think that's beautiful and you know the other example which has been one of my favorites my whole life is God help the outcasts um and I just I don't know it's a big topic to address but I just think that it's a topic that that exists and I think musical theatre as a medium has had examples of addressing it really quite beautifully yeah maybe a topic for a future episode if anyone (laughs) if anyone wants to come back on or could be a new guest uh to talk about it yeah it's an interesting topic it's so funny at this time of year too because I was just at a couple of holiday concerts and by holiday like really what I mean is Christmas concerts but just with like a random Hanukkah song thrown in here and there but I was saying to somebody afterwards that it's so like fascinating to me that there's so many Christmas songs that I find like deeply, deeply moving um, and that I connect with deeply. And yet at the same time, I do not believe a word that they're actually about. And I think that sort of dichotomy is really fascinating and something that I've been thinking about a lot, trying to get to the bottom of like just in myself of how like both of those things can be true, that I find it so moving. And at the same time, I really fundamentally do not believe in what it's saying. Yeah. Well, it's so much about the fundamental power of song, right? It's that it's, it's, you know, it's that um, takes me back to that quote that like people are constantly um, uh, using. That's the, the um, Yaparberg quote, you know, about music makes you feel a feeling, words make you think a thought, a song makes you feel a thought, right? And, and, and that's the thing, right? It's like, it's like the music, the music, the music is the thing that can really elicit the universal response, right? You know, which is so often completely divorced from what the brain is saying, right? Um, and so I, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree that it's like, you know, musical theater, this is really hyperbole, but musical theater has the ability to like save the world, right? In terms of getting people to stop focusing on what the differences are in their heads, right? Between you and somebody else. Um, and to drill down and to understand that we're all ultimately the same and we all ultimately react the same way emotionally, you know, to the same kinds of stimulus. Um, Anyway. Well, I'm really excited because we actually have a call. Um, Don't know who it is. We're going to see. Hopefully it's um, a person and not um, spam. But let's let's see who they are. I'm going to admit them right now. Hi. Hi. This is um this is Alex. I'm a friend of Danielle's. She uh, tuned me into this conversation. Hey, Alex. Welcome. Thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, of course. I have really been enjoying it. I've been having a real chill Sunday, um, semi quarantining before I go home for the holidays, and this has just been a real nice chat to listen to. Well, thank you. Do you have um, a comment or question or just saying hi? That's totally cool, too. <laughs> well, I was just saying hi, and I was loving everyone's Sondheim origin stories. And I particularly, I just love sharing mine. Um, yeah. I think that Sondheim, I think Sondheim's been really like a cornerstone of my relationship with my mother. Um, and you know, in 1990, I think, I think it was December 1990, I was literally in utero when she saw Mandy Patinkin sing Being Alive at uh, Lincoln Center at his Dress Casual concert. She had fallen in love with that, um, with that CD. And 
she actually, when she was in labor with me, played Being Alive over and over on the cassette tape until the player broke. And uh, that was, so that was my introduction to Sondheim. And throughout, you know, my whole childhood, I was listening to Bernadette Peters, um, you know, the Sondheim, et cetera, CDs and Mandy Patinkin and those like compilation CDs. And it wasn't until I was maybe 12 or 13, I started listening to his musicals really in earnest. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a really fun time just hearing you guys talk about um, Sondheim specifically. And as the conversation has moved more general, you know, I, I also agree, Robert, that musical theater has the power to, to change the world and really, you know, make make sustainable change um, in society. And so, yeah, that I, I'm, I'm really enjoying, you know, listening to you all today. Thank you. It's so fun that you mentioned your love of Sondheim connecting you to your mother. It makes me think of my mom who, I mean, I got my love of musical theater from my mother without doubt, but um, I grew up with, you know, the super classics, Rodgers and Hammerstein, that kind of thing. And I remember the first time that I convinced my mother to go see a Sondheim show with me. It was the Daniel Evans and Jenna Russell Sunday in the Park with George. And I'm sitting there hearing Finishing the Hat live for the first time, just crying. And my mother turns to me and she goes, you like this? And I just, I will never forget that because it was just two people having like completely opposite reactions. Um, Took her to see company like several times. And I remember her walking out and she goes, well, Raul was very good. Like the the, the Liz Levin (laughs) compliment thing. And after my mom listened to my episode of this podcast, she calls me and she goes, now I understand like the experience that you're having when you watch a show, like you're having all of these thoughts and all of this stuff is going on for you. And um, I think my mother is very much of the generation that, you know, musicals are happy and musicals are an escape and things like that. And I mean, I guess I have to thank Shoshana for giving me the opportunity to like have my mom understand that part of me. Um, because when I talk to her about it, she doesn't listen. But I just think that's so interesting. I think like what you grow up with and the taste that you develop kind of as you become your own adult person um, is something that really interests me. Yeah, it's really Yeah, fun. it's also a little, sorry, I was just going to say it's a little meta too when you think about how much, you know, Sondheim shows do talk about parent-child relations and um, into the woods, like fathers, mothers, people make mistakes is, is something that is, is a lyric that has really stuck with me. And I think, um, you know, was kind of a coming of age in a way revelation for me. Yeah, and it's funny, Deborah, that you mentioned that with that that specifically happened with Sunday in the Park with George because then I saw the Jake Gyllenhaal and Annalie Ashford Sunday with my mom a few years ago, and she loved it, and I was genuinely surprised that she loved it. Um, I mean, it's kind of notoriously one of the most uh, dense difficult to to like really find your way into Sondheim musicals for people that aren't already like kind of musical theater aficionados um and so I was really surprised how much my mom loved it but she still talks about it um and I don't know that she's even seen other Sondheim shows besides like things that he wrote the lyrics to like West Side Story or Gypsy um so that still sticks out as like a huge surprise to me and like is something that 
I kind of was like, oh, I've done a good job, like, training my mother. (laughs) I'd like to know for posterity, for the audio version, that both Shoshana and Deborah have the the George Sherratt painting behind them. I do. And I will say that um, several years after that um, story I just told about my mother, like, looking at me, like, why do you like this? She bought this for me. And I was shocked that she remembered how much I liked it. And that was sort of the beginning of my mother, I think, understanding sort of <laughs> how, just how deeply, you know, I, I felt for these things. So yes, it is. It's, well, it's just for audio. So anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to add too that my, my parents definitely introduced me to Sondheim. Um, and I, my early you know, experience going to see shows, Sondheim shows was with them, them taking me, them saying, you should see this. Um, so it definitely was part of our relationship too. And I, and I always talk about that, but I don't really think too much about that, that in like a emotional way sometimes. And, um, so I, I thank you for, for bringing that up. And, and just to note that actually, if you look closely, you can't really see <laughs> the, the painting that well but it's actually not exactly the Surat painting it's um the one behind me is modified um that my partner uh gave me as a uh anniversary gift so if you're looking at that and you're like that's something's wrong something's off it's because um the characters are um uh changed um so <laughs> So I thought maybe it was one of those like prototypes that they have at the Met. But. Oh yeah, no. It's, um, so like it's it's different. Like we watched, uh, you know, we watched Sunday in the Park, and part of the uh, the gift he gave me was that it's the Sunday picture, but like characters from all different movies we've watched together um, put in there. So um, so yeah, <laughs> it looks weird. That's why. Um, but yeah, think um, anyone else have um, you know uh, a response to uh, to this great comment? I'm just now thinking about how I actually my grandma is a huge was really where I got my musical theater love from. Like I saw more shows with her as a child than my parents, although. My parents did take me to, I mean, I grew up on Long Island, so it was very accessible, but um, like they took me to see like Beauty and the Beast when I was immediately, as soon as I turned four, that kind of thing. Um, but um, I, my grandma, interestingly, hates Sondheim music, deeply hates it, um, thinks his lyrics are brilliant, loves West Side Story loves Gypsy, took me to see Gypsy, um, but uh, told me once, and I've never forgotten it, and it it really, like, irks me deeply uh, that she saw the original production of A Little Night Music but left it in her mission because she hated it so much. <laughs> so, so in a weird way, like, Sondheim has bonded my grandmother and I, too, but, like, at odds. Like, it's it's our favorite thing to argue about um in like a truly loving respecting each other's opinions way um but it's totally like she's all about you know Rodgers and Hammerstein she's she's old school her first Broadway show is Oklahoma the original production so (laughs) my grandmother 
she, I mean, she liked Sondheim, but one of her like funniest comments about a musical ever. So she saw the original production of Sunday in the Park with George, which she basically liked, but she was like, I didn't like Bernadette Peters because she's too short. My grandmother said that about whoever was playing George Washington in the tour production of Hamilton she saw. She was it like, feels like just a Jewish mother thing. Like my mother frequently calls me to complain about actors' heights and shows. She's like, they, literally, they were too, t- too, too short. She was like, George like- Washington was tall. This man was not tall. <laughs> but the thing is so weird to me because also like, obviously people watching it, but like no one in my family is tall. <laughs> like... But no, she was too short. So, so I'm curious about something, Alex, which is I like I've just been for some reason I I come to this this question like you know periodically just for no particular reason. But um, but but I was asking myself the other day. Gosh, I wonder why you know when you look at um uh, when you when you look up the meaning of names, right? Like most of the time, I don't know if anybody on this call does this, but but whenever I read a description of what Robert quote unquote means, I always think, oh yeah, that's actually, you know, that's actually completely, you know, appropriate for me. Right. And so I find myself thinking, well, do we seem to match our names because there's some, you know, mystical reason, you know, behind that confluence, or is it because sometime when we're young, we learn the meaning of our names and then we just decide to own it. You know, we decide, I mean, if we like our names, we just decide we're going to become that person. I don't know. But all of this is to say, I wonder when you do experience a song in utero, (laughs) as you did with being alive, does that song ultimately carry extra meaning for you? Like, like other than, other than just the, um, the love of Sondheim, (laughs) you know, I'm just curious, like, you know, it has that song become in any way a kind of, um, you know, (laughs) statement of purpose for you um i think in some ways it really has as dan i've talked to danielle for a while now about this i do want to actually tattoo some lyrics from the song onto myself um this is actually something that i've thought about doing for a very long time i think that the words very my days has been very um very elemental to how I kind of see a philosophy of, um, I guess, a kind of living and muddling through. And, um, you know, I, I, when I was a teenager and I was studying voice, I was studying theater, Sondheim, Sondheim in general was a weird kind of touchstone for me where I, I, it, I didn't find Sondheim difficult to sing. And my voice teacher thought that that was so interesting. I just picked up those intervals. I picked up the the tricky parts. Um, And it wasn't like that with all music, but uh, it was like that with Sondheim. It was like a comfort thing. And um, I sang Being Alive when I was 13 or 14 and for a talent show thinking I, you know, understood it. And now I, I, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm 30 and I think I understand it a little bit more. Um, So, you know, maybe that song really did affect me back in, you know, 1990 in the first trimester. Um, I don't know. I want to say, I want to say yes. I want to say yes to all of that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I, you've, you've got, you've gotten me to think about very my days in a totally new way because you're right. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary line. I really think it is. And I think, um, you know, 
I think that that song has been, I think a lot of people maybe in sort of our theater generation, you know, we, we associate it with Raul Esparza's incredible performance because I you know that was broadcast. I associate it with, um, you know, maybe Patinkin, Bernadette Peters. I think that that song has, is so accessible in so many different iterations. It's, it's, everyone kind of has a way into it. So I don't know that's my personal love of being alive. You mentioned something I've been thinking about. Um, I really like the NPR uh, pop culture happy hour podcast, another like 20 minute little snippets. So really good for uh, podcast snacking. But anyway, they did um, a remembering Sondheim episode and someone was saying something about how kind of automatically the original is is kind of definitive and automatically the original is what everybody associates um, a song with. And I was thinking about this and I just thought like, I, I completely disagree with that. I think what's definitive is super individual to a person and you can have your own kind of definitive that's different from sort of mosaicist definitive. Um, but this sort of idea of, of general, you know, what's generational and what was accessible to, you know, people our age. I mean, for me, it's there are bars of forever for a lot of reasons, but um, I think for a lot of young people, it's going to be the one that's happening right now. And that hopefully we're going to get a few years out of, I think, especially for young women, that's going to become kind of the touchstone being alive. But um, yeah, I'm just really love the idea that there's a variability and kind of definitive and ultimate and all of these sort of um, losing the word. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like what, what is the, the most that we connect to, I think is, is super individual. I I'm on mute. I'm going to just, uh, we have someone else who called in. So I wanna bring them on and we have a lot, uh, a few other comments and questions to get to. Um, feel free to stay on and, and respond. Um, I'm just gonna let this other person in and we'll take their question or comment. All right, um, let us know your name. Um, uh, yeah, and, and what your comment is. Hi, Shoshana, it's Gela. Oh, hey, you've been commenting hey. on Facebook. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, I was commenting so much, I figured I should just call in and, <laughs> uh, you know, say the things that I was commenting. Hi, Bethann, by the way. Um, uh, regarding theology, hi, have you met me? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, so I, I was listening on my phone, so I've missed had the last however many minutes of the conversation so I have no idea what you're up to but um you know I feel like Sondheim was one of the things that my parents really got right about our upbringing um as I mentioned in the Facebook uh chat I I don't remember a time when I didn't know about Sondheim um I have very early memories of watching Sunday in the Park with George on American Playhouse uh, must have been in the mid 80s. So I was probably like around five or six or something. Um, and yeah, I, I was a little bit shocked to hear that Sunday is is considered one of the, you know, more difficult musicals to, to get into because it's like, it's like my first musical practically, um, like period. And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that I think that Stephen Sondheim is a big part of why my brother became an actor. He's now a, a stage actor off Broadway, um, and just Sondheim is 
a, just such a huge part of the the soundtrack of my life and it's 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 a little bit odd for me to hear all these folks saying oh you know I first discovered Sondheim um you know uh as as an adult because I can't I I almost can't imagine my childhood without Sondheim in it um yeah that's 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 most of what I wanted to say. Um, I I talk about the seeing Into the Woods as my first Dondheim experience, but I actually realized when I was a kid, I had this little doll. And you know, there's some dolls where you like pull a string or push a button and it makes sound. So there was a little clown, stuffed, you know, stuffed clown that you pulled the string and its head would kind of do a little rocking motion and it would play a little tinkly music box version of Send in the Clowns. My grandma had one of those. It was the creepiest thing. That sounds like the creepiest doll in the world. (laughs) That I knew that that was a song with words. I just knew it as like a doll, like a sound that a doll makes. And I think there's something, and I think for a lot of people, this might be nursery rhymes or prayers, but there's something about the music that kind of infiltrates that you, before you even know what music is, you have these sounds in your head. And so like, I mean, that's not my favorite song, but I can't even think of it as a song. It's just what music is. Right. Right. Like I said, um, I, I wrote in the in the Facebook comments, um, yeah, music, music goes straight to the soul the same way that smell goes straight to the memory. It's one of those really, really essential parts of somebody's identity, I think. So, uh, so I'm curious, uh, Gela, if, uh, um, because I, I feel like I discovered Sondheim when I was in high school. So I was not quite an adult, but I was not a child either. Um, and uh, and so much of what I associate um, with my discovering Sondheim was, for me personally, was was I didn't come out until I was in college, but like I absolutely knew that I was gay, and so I remember, I like I remember listening to Company and being like really really affected by it, right? Even though it wasn't about being gay, but about that whole mm-hmm. idea of you know what it is that you're feeling in your heart versus what it is that you're letting yourself do. So I'm so I'm curious for you because you're saying that that Sondheim has been a part of your life since you were a child. Um, I guess my question is like, do you feel like, I would assume that your appreciation of Sondheim has has changed, even though he's been a presence as you've gotten uh, through the different stages of your life. Would you say that that's true? Like, I'm curious as a child, what did you, what, what did Sondheim mean to you? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. My appreciation for Sondheim has, has changed and deepened um, over the years. And like, as I discovered different Sondheim musicals because I mean you know um I so I I mean I was a young child when when a lot of these musicals came out and you know a lot of them were before I was born and you know I kind of I discovered them gradually it's not like I had I had all of Sondheim laid out before me as a young child like you know there was Sunday in the Park with George and then there was Sweeney Todd and then there was and and I mean there was Forum and you know I also like discovered after I already knew for him, oh, that's Sondheim, um, you know, one of those things. I don't know, as a child, I think that mostly what I got from it was just the, you know, just something about the sounds of it, the, the, just the musicality of it was something that 
you know, again, I feel like it just went straight to my soul. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that as, as I got older, it, a lot of it touched me like more conceptually, more in terms of abstract thought, um, in terms of shaping how I understood things like the, the messages of Sunday in the park with George, especially just as I, you know, as I got older, um, and the, the ideas of, you know, um, doing things, uh, doing things the way that you see that they need to be done and making choices and, you know, knowing that making the choice is more important sometimes than getting it right. And, you know, just the, the, the lessons of, of the musicals can, it kind of, you know, just came to me in, in stages, I think, you know, as my mind matured, like, Oh, that's what that is. And like, it was already there in my head. So I think that some of, I think that maybe, you know, knowing, knowing Sondheim made coming to certain realizations um, just about life, you know, easier and more, more accessible to me. Um, maybe, maybe than to other kids my age. I don't know, but uh, yeah, cause I was always a weird kid who thought too much. So I don't know, maybe Sondheim did that to me. <laughs> no, but I, but I think, I mean, I'll just say this quickly, but I think that what you're describing is something that um, as I talk to more and more people, I, I feel like this is a big through line, which is that regardless of how you feel about any individual work, the thing that he stood for was a kind of integrity, right? An integrity that has- Oh, absolutely, just, yeah. Right? What is my voice? How do I honor it? And I'm going to stick to that. And, and that he's, I think for me, the thing that was so constantly inspiring about his career is that he lived by it and he found a way to be successful <laughs> you know and then and mm. all these decades later after people were saying he should stop writing his music we're having a conversation like this where where there's a right where there are whole new generations talking about how deeply they felt uh his work as a child i mean that's extraordinary to me um yeah anyway. what's funny is that makes me think of um you know, I I completely agree with all of that, and I think I I felt and internalized a lot of the messages in Sondheim musicals well before I had the language to articulate them. Um, yeah. But I, you know, as much as familiar as I was and as like exposed as I was to Sondheim as as like a preteen and a teenager, um, and even a little bit as a child the thing that really hooked me into musical theater and like um was was rent and jonathan larson and mm. i think what's really interesting about what you just said and what it made me think of is that i think that idea of like the integrity and and having um and really like honoring your your voice and your artistic voice um, I very much got from Jonathan Larson, which now years later, um, I, you know, after, you know, completely immersing myself in all of his work and like adoring it for forever, um, actually indirectly came from Sondheim through him, 
So mm-hmm. that is just something I'm going to be mulling over for a while now. <laughs> well, just to go back to the thing about childhood and liking something as a kid is I think the other thing with Sondheim and with songs from musicals in general is because they are songs because they are from musicals that sometimes you're exposed to them at a younger age than you might be exposed to like an adult novel or something like that. And mm-hmm. so I think that's why sometimes for a lot of people, they're a way into adult emotions because like chances are you would get a recording of a musical before you might be, you know, reading at an adult level or something like that. And I think for a lot of kids, especially depending on what their experiences are. And I know I had this experience where I felt like a lot of things going on both in my life and also emotionally, you know, they weren't reflected anywhere in like children's literature or anything like that. Um, And so it was much easier for me to kind of relate to more adult things. But because, you know, when you're eight, you're probably not going to be able to get through, you know, a novel or something else that's written for adults or because there may be too many adult themes that I think like musicals can be a good way into some of that. I can't always, I can't help but notice as well as the person who's not from the US on this call I think that that is also influencing because in my just personal experience Sondheim was something that you discovered when you hit teenage years and decided to become a theatre nerd and you went and found it because it isn't mm. it isn't like put in the forefront quite as much as Julie Andrews was because she's Julie Andrews or Andrew Lloyd Webber because he's here because it's all it, that's what's happening right here so for me Sondheim Rent like a lot of the big American musicals were things that I kind of went and found when I was a teenager and even of all my kind of fellow English kind of theatre makers the one that I always think of when it comes to Sondheim she studied in New York because she loves Sondheim she knows his musicals brilliantly but I'm like I feel like it's not a coincidence and it's because you went and studied musical theatre in New York. Uh, I, not to undervalue it, it's just I keep kind of noticing, like when I think of childhood, yeah, I think of Mary Poppins and I think of Oliver mm. Twist. <laughs> I don't think of, of Rent. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's not quite childhood, but you see, I don't think of Sunday in the Park with George. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, my childhood was very much like, like childhood proper, not not like, teenagerhood um but like yeah I mean Sound of Music was it Julie Andrews was it 100% I also I also had a very odd upbringing where you know as a small child I was listening to Sweeney Todd and my father read me a tale of two cities for bedtime stories so I mean I I'm not sure that everybody is as exposed to to Sondheim in their childhood even in New York as as I was um Um, but Thank you. I want to, uh, we have another caller, so I want to move on to them. Gelly, you're welcome to stay on the call and respond uh, with us, um, but I'm going to let them in. So thanks, Susanna. Yeah, thanks for calling. Um, hi, uh, who's this? And uh, hi. let us know your name and uh, your comment or question. So I, um, I was really uh, excited by something that um, and I'm sorry that uh, that she's not here. I, I mean, I the other episodes I saw was um, with you guys, I loved as well. <laughs> but this just happened uh, to be something you, I'm interested sorry, in. Sorry, can you say your name also so we know who you're talking to? 
Sure. My name's Catherine. Oh, hey, Catherine. Catherine. I'm glad you got. I'm glad you got to call in. <laughs> yeah, I realized I'd put money on my Skype, so I'm calling actually through. Oh, that. great. Um, so I really loved how Sarah Marshall said that, like, musicals are an art form where it's possible for characters to express themselves successfully and make their feelings understood so that the outside world will like stop oppressing them or whatever it is that the characters want from that recognition, which I thought was really interesting because that so rarely happens in real life, right? Where people, um, I feel like it happens very rarely where you have that moment of recognition with someone. And um, so anyway, I was interested in like how that works in musicals. Um, and also once that like oppression ends or whatever, the character when they're singing their heart out and they get recognized for who they are. Um, if there's like, if musicals maybe have like a unique vision of community. Um, I mean, this is a very broad, huge question, but like, what does that community look like in musicals? I don't know, just things I've been thinking about that your show has sort of prompted me to to think about more. So I'm gonna unmute this, the stream and stop talking. Is that, a, do you have any questions? <laughs> Yeah, um, if you unmute the screen, make sure to mute yourself on the Zoom um, or on the call, rather. Uh, or you can, or feel free to. Or if you unmute, <laughs> feel free to leave the call. Also, awesome. Thank you so much, Catherine. And Catherine is one of our like great uh, Twitter followers, always commenting. So, we're hey, Catherine, it's uh, it's Rob. I remember your summer session. Uh, yeah, that's how. That's how. Um, I don't know if that's how Catherine found the thing, but uh, that's how I know her. So it's great to see your name around. That's anyway. so awesome. That's so awesome that there's that um, that there's that connection. But um, yeah, so to repeat, um, she also emailed in her uh, comment because she's uh, international, so we're unsure if she was going to get to uh, speak. But basically, she's referencing the Sarah Marshall episode, which was on. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors uh, earlier this season um, that uh, where she, Sarah Marshall said that musicals are an art form where it's possible for characters to express themselves successfully and make their feelings understood so the outside world will stop oppressing them or whatever it is that characters want from that recognition. And Catherine is wondering if others think that it is uh, the thing that sets musicals apart from other art forms, like the our guest Sarah Marshall uh, suggested, uh, and also how does recognition work in musicals, or do musicals have a unique vision of community? Um, yeah. So if anyone wants to big questions, Janine, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a piece of it. And just that, I mean, part of it to me um, it goes off of what Robert was saying before about the power of song. So I think that putting, um, you know, song into, um, you know, into drama and having character and conflict and all of that is, is um, I think that's at the heart of it, one of the primal things that we're all drawn to when we um, begin to love musical theater. And um, the, the ability to get to know a character that well, to get to know their insides, to hear how they express themselves from their point of view um, uh, in a really genuine way. And then also through the art of song, I think is, is across, you know, across eras, you know, is, 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 is a magical thing. One of the most magical things about it. And, um, and I actually also think it's no, um, it's no surprise that I think that, those of us who fall in love with musical theater and thinking about maybe the times where musical theater has really changed our lives and, and given us a, a lifeline or a connection are those moments when um, when you really want to be seen, 
when you want to be um, understood for who you really are, you know? And I think that's everyone on earth, but I think that we all have moments um, in particular where that's incredibly important and that, um, and that musical theater can do that. Uh, I think that that is also a part of the community aspect uh, as well. Both like, uh, I guess there's the inside of musicals, how community is portrayed is, you know, one topic. And then I think, you know, even, you know, meta outside of um, that, even some of the community that we're talking right now about, you know, in being in different countries right now and and how we have this shared language and this these shared experiences. And also in some cases, um, you know, different uh you know, different perspectives and different um memories and things, you know, but but that all of this connects us. And this is like I think the the art at its absolute best is being able to have these kinds of conversations. When you talk about community, I mean at first I was thinking, well, like Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, that you would have somebody singing about something and then like the whole town in on it. But it really is, I mean, uh, in the Heights or um, somebody mentioned Oliver, like the consider yourself scene where all of a sudden, like the entirety of the city <laughs> um, within musicals, I think that that's kind of, I mean, that's not a thing that happens in real life. And it's kind of cool to see it happen in musicals where like there's a somebody is having a moment with one other person and then the whole community isn't on it. But on a meta level also, I think community theater, um, I mean, how how important is that to tons across America at the very least, but like, you know, um, you know, some of it is coming back, some of it is going away, but, um, you know, whether, um, I mean, I was involved in Oliver, actually, when I was 10, that was a community theater thing, and, and, um, and then I did a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan productions from the Pitt Orchestra, and my parents still do it, and, and it's like a, um, you know, especially with my parents, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, that, that I and they were involved with, you know, it's a community organization that's been around for 40 something years at this point. And some of the original members are dying and, and the outpouring of support from the people in the, um, in the group for one another through the ends of their lives and, and all that and, and like second generation members of those community theater. It's, it's, I don't know, I may have wandered off topic a little bit, but it's, it's pretty important. <laughs> just to, to jump on it as well, I think that what we're talking about just applies to the concept of something being live. You know, it, listening to an album is nowhere near the experience of going to the gig, right? And I think musical theater is a really great example of that. You, there have been in recent years, releases of incredibly well-filmed productions but it's not the same as being there it's not when someone makes you laugh in person it's not the same and I think that then goes in the opposite direction when something is is sad or emotional or, or vulnerable in person it's just so much more important and significant and it's because of that connection and that sense of community and I I think that that's what all audiences are looking for whenever they go to something live. I have. Oh, go ahead, Victoria. And this keeps happening, Daniel. <laughs> We're just on the same wavelength. You go I guess this so. time. 
Um, I was gonna say, I have two comments that sort of contradict each other, but the first kind of going off of some of the community stuff is, so I don't know, I know some of you are familiar with Lear de Bastinet and some of you are maybe not, but she's a director here in New York. Um, and a lot of her work is very community-based. And as part of that, they've actually brought in social scientists to study the effects of participating in theater, participating in sort of these live events. And they've been able to prove that it does have like positive outcomes for the people who are involved um, and positive outcomes that help them in other areas of their life. Uh, and I know that she's going to do more with that, um, but actually trying to bring in some science to back up what I think a lot of people feel and know that this stuff is enriching um, for people's lives in many ways. And then the part that I was gonna say that contradicts that is that I also, I personally feel very strongly that like, I don't think participating in art in any way or going to it or making it makes you a good person or is any type of litmus test for that. And I think that sort of thing that we say of like, oh, people who, you know, do theater could never be bad. Like, we know that's not true. It's very ahistorical. Um, and I would just like to say it's 227, which is, means that I've gone almost 90 minutes without mentioning the Holocaust, but now I'm going to. Um, which is, I just think though, that that's like the Holocaust, um, you know, it's sort of like the ultimate historical proof that people and societies that, you know, love the arts can be really terrible because of course, like Germany, France, all these countries that were incredibly complicit in the murder of millions and millions of people, you know, they love the arts. Um, and I just think that's an important thing to remind people of. Um, let's, we're get as, as you mentioned, it's 227. So we're gonna get, we're getting close to the end. So Danielle, I know you had something to respond. So uh, you definitely respond. And after that, we'll go uh, into the, you know, the ending section of this. So, uh, but Danielle first. Uh, Sure. Yeah. I wonder if there you had to follow the Holocaust, Danielle. <laughs> um, there's the, the original sort of impetus for this part of the discussion, the question about like, um, whether musicals are like letting the character express this, um, deeper desire, um, and, and how that relates to music. I was, thinking about how that's sort of the, the most basic way we explain like musical theater dramaturgy to people who don't really know the form is that the characters sing when speaking would no longer serve them or when they can no longer communicate just through speaking. Um, and I was a, a good friend of mine in my um, master's program that I did uh, she's from Iran, and so she wasn't really exposed to musicals and didn't. And so this was all a very new subject matter to her. And that was sort of the the line we uh, started with was in, in terms of explaining musical theater structure. And then she saw some musicals and came back with the question related to sort of this like community idea of like, okay, well, I understand that um, for some of the songs, but then like, for example, why does the, what then what's the uh, 
reason for the ensemble? What are they communicating? Why why does suddenly the whole town get involved? <laughs> what, what deeper emotion are they communicating? And I thought that was such a good question. Um, and I think we just kind of hit on it, which was the just like generally it's it's the music itself. Um, and I think I had something more a more full conclusion to that observation a few minutes ago, but I've lost it now, but yeah. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Catherine and everyone who called in. I, I do want to respond to that just briefly and with the way this discussion on the response has been going. I think this question could probably be an episode, but um, the just we've been talking a lot about community and ensembles. And I always think about the music man um, and how I actually prefer to see that as uh, in, in a community. Like I, I don't really have any interest in seeing the Broadway production, although I would, but um, because I, I actually prefer that show as like a community theater show or a high school show, because then it's like the community you see on stage is actually the town. And it just like brings this beautiful dimension to the show that um, should, th that is, you know, it doesn't have to be there, but it, it's so great when it is because it's like that this is the town, you know, so things like that. Um, I just really, really love. And I think the, and the there are other shows that I'm sure do that, too. Maybe some Rogers and Hammerstein and but the Music Man's like a very um, obvious example to me. And then uh, obviously not a musical, but like our town. Yeah, our town. Uh, There's so many like that's why our town like is such a community driven play because it involves the town um in that way and i think music man does that yeah and if i can add just one quick yeah, yeah. thing um just also to tie this i think to what victoria was talking about which is like to me so much of it is just about physics you know the physics of music it's like when characters are singing they're creating sound waves in their bodies and those sound waves are going out to us as an audience and we're resonating with those sound waves. And there's something that's very powerful when you get a whole room of people resonating to sound waves in the same way, right? But as Victoria points out, that power like does not have like a moral <laughs> leaning, right? And it's like, you can use that power as, as a creative musical theater, this is a little corny, but for good, or you can use it for evil, right? You can use it for propaganda. Right. So so anyway, so I just wanted to add that um, because I think Victoria is absolutely right. You know, the, the power, it is a powerful form, but you use it in the wrong way and, um, you know, cause some pretty awful stuff. <laughs> I just I think we're putting out things that need to be episodes. I mean, you need to have a Music Man episode. But when you're talking about the physics of music, like Mary and the Librarian, that song and and the way it turns into a dance. I, I think that that's just, that's what that song is. It's yeah. like, there's yeah. just a thought that turns into words that turns into music that turns into a dance. Right. That's and that, that song isn't a hundred percent moral. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite immoral. In fact. <laughs> um, awesome. Thank you to everyone. I'm gonna, so we, there were a lot of questions or just uh, not even questions, but just comments uh, from Twitter uh, over the course of the year. 
uh, questions that we didn't get to, and that's I'm, I'm not going to go through them now. But I just want to thank, you know, everyone who um, you know comments on on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram on our on you know scenes of song social media. Thank you for engaging with the podcast in this way. I. We had a really great email from a season one guest, uh, Daniel Levin, who um, I just want to read really a, a little bit of it anyway, really quickly. Uh, we don't need to respond, but I just thought it was a nice email from a, a season one guest. And, you know, please, you know, send, you know, email scene to song at gmail.com. Um, even if you're just like responding to an episode, it doesn't have to be like a question. Like, we'll definitely. We definitely appreciate those too. So I just wanted to read this, um, you know, email from Daniel Levin, who who came hadn't listened to the podcast in a while and came back to an episode, and that's that's always great too. Um, so um, he says, just a random note that I was scrolling through my podcast library and thought, hey, I haven't listened to Scene to Song in a while. First of all, kudos for just keeping on doing it. I remember when I participated. You were, I think, just starting out. It's such an accomplishment just to stick with something and build it over the years. Uh, I also just found myself smiling a lot during the podcast. Your guest, and this is uh, Amber, uh, who we're talking about, like me, chose Les Mis for uh, biggest influence. And I, of course, identified with that. I also thought she put into words what I feel about Quiet Uptown from Hamilton. It's starting startlingly sad and delicate while singing words like unimaginable that you wouldn't think would feel that way. I was a little bit with you in thinking that rock musicals are a broader category like the rock operas, but I can see the value of how she compartmentalized this special subset of rock jukebox musicals. It was fun to hear Dashboard Lights and also the quartet. I was Anthony in high school uh, from Sweeney Todd, and I think that think totally butchered my part in that even so I do remember always getting chills during I love you even as I saw you even as it did not matter um uh, anyway I just enjoyed it a lot and wanted to let you know that um so uh yeah just thank you Daniel for taking the time to write in about Amber's episode um really appreciate uh you coming back to the show and uh to listening to the show and um taking the time to write that email so yeah um we're a little bit past time but i i think that's all right we can just uh you know if anybody needs to hop off that's totally fine but yeah if we just want to go around say like a final word i kind of pose the question of you know one musical we are looking forward to seeing either soon or in the near far future or far future since i i'm i'm personally haven't seen anything yet um because of covid it's such a weird time but um but yeah, um, so that's the question. If you want to make your final word about something we've talked about over the episode, totally fine too. Just um, you know, make it brief, and, and we'll all go around in uh, you know the order we we started with, starting with Janine. So thank you, Shoshana, for moderating this um, really interesting conversation. Um, I will say that um, for me, I'm. I'm in the short term, I'm very much looking forward to seeing Company on Broadway tomorrow night when I have my tickets. So uh, really, really looking forward to that. And in the broader sense, I'm just looking forward to um, all new work um, from the, the community that that is, is writing today. And I think just we, um, 
are up against a lot of challenges right now, but the fact that so many of us are continuing to find ways to do it, find creative ways to do it, um, rest when we need to, but come back to the work is, um, is what I'm, I think, most excited about and, and what gets me out of bed most days. Great. Uh, Deborah. Um, one thing I'm looking forward to is, I think it's scheduled for next fall. Um, Classic Stage is going to do A Man of No Importance, um, which is a musical I've never gotten to see. Um, it'll be John Doyle's last production with CSE, and I think it's just really perfect for him. Um, so hopefully that will happen and we'll get to see it. Great. Uh, Rob. Yes, uh, I just want to say also, yes, thank you, Shoshana, for um, bringing this all together. And it's been fantastic listening to everybody and uh, just a great conversation. Um, I am also looking forward to seeing anything, uh, which will be nice. Um, but I especially, I, I saw the company uh, production in London, I think maybe one of the last things that I saw before the first shutdown. So I would love to see it in New York and to see how it, you know, just resonates there. But yeah only work as well. Great. Um, Danielle. Um, I am also really excited to see company. I have tickets for Christmas Eve. Um, well, it's a matinee, but you know, um, if, you know, assuming fingers crossed that, uh, it happens, uh, cause like Shoshana said, it's a weird time. Um, and then I'm also seeing Carolina change. Uh, it's closing weekend. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, yeah, I think it's me. First of all, that message was so, so, so lovely to listen to. And I think we have a lot in common and we should talk again. Um, thank you, Shoshana. Uh, I'm enjoying lots of things at the moment. I kind of want to, I thought of this while we were talking earlier. I want to give a shout out to a musical. There's a good chance I might never see, which is um, Fifth Avenue Theatre's production of Hunchback of Notre Dame. I don't know if anyone saw it. It's absolutely stunning. Um, I've seen clips of it online. It needs to succeed a lot for it to ever be in the UK. Uh, and also we need to get past so many hurdles now. But I just think it's it's got really beautiful use of inclusivity and diversity. And, um, and I think it's really, really stunning. And I just think it's worth giving it a shout out because I think some really beautiful work got made there. And I think it deserves some, a little bit of recognition. Robert? Yeah, um, I'm completely with Janine. Like, I'm just looking forward to seeing, you know, any any new work. Um, uh, specifically, I'm really, uh, I, we've just finished at NYU with our, our uh, second year students have just presented 45 minutes of their thesis musicals. So I'm very, very excited to see how those uh, 45 uh, minute pieces grow into full length shows. Um, and uh, just in terms of, I have not seen a Broadway show yet, but I'm really hoping I get to see Flying Over Sunset because I have heard such polarizing views on that show. And whenever I hear such polarized views, I get very excited. Right? I would love to talk to you about it. Because <laughs> it means it is touching people in different ways. So anyway. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Beth Ann. Um, yeah, I... I... I'm excited to go back to Broadway eventually. Um, and I mean, I was already, I mean, I had tickets for company before the shutdown and I 
want to see it. Um, but the episode breaking down that production, I think that was Deborah. Yeah, you really uh, got me even more excited about it, and uh, I I hope I do. So, and also Carolina change, because um, any chance to see Carolina change is worth taking. <laughs> Great. And uh, Victoria? Well, I'm going through a very pessimistic stage, so I don't know if there's anything that I'm really excited to see, but I have decided that it is my dream, well, one of my dreams, to have a production of A Little Night Music starring Jennifer Anderson and Brad Pitt. So <laughs> if any producers are listening to this, please get in touch with me <laughs> so we can make this happen. Because uh, it's just, it's really my dream, and I think it's what America needs right now. That's a really great dream. And I'm sorry, I forget who's uh, who, the person who called in who's still on. I it, It's just a bunch of numbers, so. Is it Alex? I can't tell. Is it Alex? I think it's Alex. If you wanna, if you wanna, yeah, that's in here too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in the short term, I am supposed to come up New Year's Eve to New York and see the off-Broadway CSC Assassins and Six over New Year's Eve weekend. So I'm excited for that. Crossing my fingers. We're going to see if it all happens. Um, and then I, I just wanted to piggyback off of the Music Man community uh, conversation before. What I'm really excited for is I house manage at the Only Theater Center in Only, Maryland. And next summer, they are going to do a um, production of the Music Man that is going to be both um, hearing and non-hearing cast. Wow. Um, and they're going to, if you've seen um, Only Murders in the Building, uh, James Caberly, who played Nathan Lane's son on that, is going to be our Harold Hill. And we're really excited about it. Um, and it's, I think it's going to be a really beautiful production that has been in the works for many years. So that's something that I'm really excited about in the musical theater landscape that's coming up. Nice. Um, great. Uh, I. I don't have anything on my agenda. As I said, I'm um, I'm very, being very cautious, but um, I did want to give a shout out. I was I was thinking we might talk about Tick Tick Boom because uh, it relates to the artist characters, and you know Jonathan Larson was brought up. Um, I I just really loved that the movie that came out recently, um, uh, and. Uh, I, I saw, I think I saw the show once uh, when they did it at City Center, but it just didn't, um, it didn't stick with me. And uh, so this, I kind of came to this movie a bit fresh with the material because I didn't really remember it. Um, and I, I watched it two times, um, which I rarely do with movies, watching them so close together like that. So um, I just, I guess I'll just give a shout out to that, to that film um, as just like a really, interesting look at an at an artist character. Um, I know Robert, we talked a lot about rent on uh, our our uh, episode, but um, but now I'm, you know, Jonathan Larson as an artist is is an artist character. So, so it's a yeah. and the film was also just I, you know I just watched it and it's just done with such passion. I mean you just feel the passion of everybody involved in it. You know, and that's you know that's really thrilling to see also. And to bring it full circle, the way they more fully integrated Sunday in the Park with George throughout it yeah. um, really made me happy. Yeah. And Bernadette Peters got like <laughs> a moment. 
Find somebody who looks at you the way Andrew Garfield looks at Bernadette Peters. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to hire Andrew Garfield to walk around and look at you all day. <laughs> so I just wanted to bring up that movie as my I'm, I'm not looking forward to it, obviously, because I already saw it, but I'm looking forward to it being um, just one of the, you know, part of the canon of, of musical theater films uh, that uh, we have. And uh, yeah, and I think that's it. Um, thank you, everybody, so much for being on this. Um, and thank you to everyone who called in. Um, very excited about that. Um, please. Uh, catch up on any episodes you may have missed from season four. Uh, we do have a Music Man episode from season one. We definitely can revisit the Music Man in a later episode as well with a new guest, but definitely check out the Music Man episode from season one. It's a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, follow us on, I assume you're on Facebook right now uh, if you're watching this live, but follow us on Facebook, um, Scenes to Song with Shoshana Greenberg podcast. Uh, Twitter, scene song, Instagram, scene to song. I engage with uh, the podcast there. Um, and yeah, thanks so much, everyone. Have a great afternoon or evening, wherever you're um, calling in from and watching from. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Scene to Song will be going on a brief hiatus to prepare for Season 5 and will return in early 2022. In the meantime, you can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Follow us on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. Thank you to everyone who has listened, and Happy New Year! <laughs>